real news. Welcome, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. So today is November 21st, 2019, and um, it's it's pretty cold where I'm at. And it's kind of, um, I'm kind of stressing out because Thanksgiving is like literally around the corner. Um, and I'm going to be seeing my child that I haven't seen in like forever. And um, there's a lot uh, going on. Uh, and I don't know where to begin today. I mean, I will be publishing a bunch of stuff today. Um that way they're short and sweet. Yesterday I did kind of a recap article on torysays.com where I show you that we knew everything that is happening right now. Everyone's suddenly, whoa, $7.4 billion. That's only one aspect. That's talking only Burisma. You have no idea how many other companies, oligarchs are involved. And I'm going to tell you what. Clinton Foundation is the key. Epstein Foundation is the key. There is so much going on. And like the article says on TorySays.com, the Ukraine is the Democrat Party's Hiroshima. This is it for them. And you can see that they are in full panic mode, not only from having witness after witness that witness nothing to say something, right? Like they want them to remember things, you know, like uh, today we saw that one of them has supersonic hearing and remembers only what Adam Schiff needed him to remember. <laughs> I'm sorry to remember like this can't be any more ridiculous. Let's be honest. It's uh, a sham. The media is working together. And that's the point. OK, how do we make this mainstream? How do we how do we hold them accountable if no one is reporting on it? And you're going to be like, but you're reporting on it. Yeah. And X, Y, Z is reporting on it. Yeah. But who is really reporting on it? That's the question. Who's reporting on it? Who's reporting on it? That's in every airport, every train station, every hotel. Who's reporting on none of them? Silence. So today I thought I'd kind of like walk us through a few things that are pretty interesting of what's going on here and what's going on on the other side of the pond. Uh, a Russia Ukraine meeting coming together, but boy, there's some details, you guys. Uh, I can't wait to drop this article because the EU is in dire, um, need right now. Uh, the policy that our president has implemented, the foreign policy with the America first policy, protecting our interests, policy, protecting our interests, not other people's, not the globalists, but our interest has seem uh, it seems that we're getting somewhere. So um, aside from that, I just wanted to, you know, tell all you out there, all you parents, the you know, the fun parents, if your kid's sick, don't take them ice skating. See, I let. Phoebe go ice skating yesterday, even though she was sick and she's even sicker today. Um, yeah, no matter how well they seem, mm -mm, not good. <laughs> Just force them to stay in their room and uh, watch TV or binge something on Netflix rather than, um, go out. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Haley Kennington's, uh, husband. I want to wish him a happy birthday. Um, you know, she's, she's the person that makes my, uh, the words that I put on the internet look, you know, understandable sometimes. She edits a lot of our, our articles. So we appreciate her. 
Uh, so where do we start? Where do you guys want to start? Do you want to start with Rudy Giuliani and who and why this Parnas debacle came out? Obviously, it was to try to get Rudy Giuliani reined in. But, you know, this kind of goes off the theme of what IG, uh, the IG, IG Horowitz dropped in regards to confidential human sources and their integrity. Because when you guys see, I'll, and I'll be putting it in writing. Who was the one that blew the whistle on Parnas? You're going to be like, what? Mm. So I'll talk about that. Let's start, I think, where we should start is talk about um, the foreign side of policies. Um, or do you want Julianne? Okay, a lot of people are like, what do you mean on Julianne? Okay, let's revisit. Lev Parnas, Igor, Igor Fruman, I want you guys to listen. There is a... Um, chart that says U.S. versus Parnas et al. Straw donor scheme, right? And it says information. Ukrainian government official goes to Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, and then there's a committee. I'm just going to play the clip to hear what they told you happened and is happening. Take a listen. Had several meetings with Congressman One, and at these meetings, Parnas, on behalf of Ukrainian government official lobbied Congressman One to advocate for the removal of the then U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Protecting the integrity of our elections and protecting our elections from unlawful foreign influence are core functions of our campaign finance laws. And as this office has made clear, we will not hesitate to investigate and prosecute those who engage in criminal conduct that draws into question the integrity of our political process. And I want to add that this investigation is continuing. Now I want to acknowledge and thank our wonderful AUSAs who worked on prosecuting and investigating this case and will continue to investigate this case. To my right is Rebecca Donaleski and someone who would ordinarily be to her right, uh, Nick Rose, uh, could not be here today because he is in the Eastern District of Virginia assisting with the presentment of Parnas and Truman. But to Rebecca's right is Russ Capone and Edward Discan, and they are our uh, marvelous co-chiefs of our public corruption unit. And I also want to thank our partner in this case and so many of our important cases, uh, the New York Office of the FBI, represented to here today, to my left, Bill Sweeney, my good friend, the assistant director in charge of the New York field office. To his left, Mike Driscoll, the special agent in charge of the criminal division. And to his left, uh, George Kazami, the special agent in charge of public corruption at the FBI. And now I'd like to invite to the podium uh, my very good friend, uh, Bill Sweeney, for any comments you'd like to make. Thanks, Jeff. Last night at a Washington Dulles International Airport, the FBI arrested Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman on campaign finance-related charges as they attempted to leave the United States. Andre Kukushkin was arrested in San Francisco shortly thereafter. David Correa, the fourth individual charged in today's indictment, is not yet in our custody. Campaign finance, finance laws exist for a reason. The American people expect and deserve an election process that has not been corrupted by the influence of foreign interests, and the public has a right to know the true source of campaign contributions. Laws make up the fabric of who we are as a nation. These allegations are not about some technicality, a civil violation, 
or an error on a form. This investigation is about corrupt behavior, deliberate law-breaking. The FBI takes the obligation to tackle corruption seriously. There are no exceptions to this rule. We gather evidence, we collect facts, and we will act on them when appropriate. As Jeff mentioned, our investigation will continue. Many thanks always to Jeff and your team of prosecutors here at the Southern District. Thank you as well to our FBI personnel and our offices in Miami, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. And, of course, thanks, Mike and George, to your team and the team of agents and professionals who uh, are quiet professionals and solid public servants here in the New York office. Thank you. Thank you. Interesting. Interesting. No questions, nothing. They're like, yep, let's just get Rudy Giuliani. There are no questions. Why would there be questions? See, the media has scrubbed information that's really important that people know. Okay. It is very important that people know a lot of information like, you know, how did this come about? Who put it together? Because it seems like the Washington Post has tried to scrub something that they put in there that a lot of us, you know, put into PDF immediately. And you have to wonder why they would do so. I mean, yes, some of that is on the Wayback Machine, so we get to keep it. Right. <laughs> but this is the cover up. This is where we need to showcase. Okay. We need to showcase the collusion that the media and the Democrats have been orchestrating together. That's really, really important that a huge Clinton Foundation donor, you know, is the one, a, a, a criminal Clinton Foundation donor is the one that um, pretty much provided the FBI with information in regards to um, Rudy Giuliani and his activities. And that's what's astonishing. That no one seems to say, oh, well, you know, this is a little bit odd. This guy was banned, banned, banned from ever entering the United States of America. Banned. Like he was disallowed to enter. Yet, under the Obama administration, he was totally allowed to come back in. Mm. So, here's the thing. Burisma. How did all of this Burisma stuff start, right? And I told you that it was when he was in a lot of trouble. Uh, you know, uh, Mikola, um, or Nikolai, Mikola is his name. People call him Nikolai. It's Mikola. Um, uh, he was in trouble. He was caught by the United Kingdom in a money laundering scandal, called up Kerry and Biden, help me get me out of here. And they were all making money anyway. I mean, Hillary Clinton and her, uh, insane Clinton foundation has been making millions and billions of dollars in the Ukraine for a very, very, very long time. So what, uh, People need to remember is that the people that own Burisma are connected to a company in Delaware. <laughs> Did you know that Burisma started in Delaware? Oh my God, wait, who's from Delaware, you guys? Oh, that's right. Because wait till you get this report in your hands, okay? Without saying too many, you know, um, too many names because, you know, I know that the leftist media, a lot of them listen to the show and then they write things to mitigate, right? But this all started, we're talking whoosh, way back, okay? Uh, 
um, has origins in Delaware. So one would have to think, wait a minute, what do you mean it has origins in Delaware? How's that possible? Are you saying that, uh, <laughs> who's from Delaware again? I'm sorry. I'm having way too much fun with this. Because the person that actually told the FBI that something was up was a corrupt clown, a corrupt oligarch that has done anything in their power to, um, how do you say, extort people, even his own nation of the Ukraine. And he holds three different passports. Oh, and he hid most of his stuff in Cyprus. You know that money? Mm. You remember what happened in Cyprus with the banks, how they had to like take an average Joe's checking account and kind of, what did they call it? Haircut. They gave him a haircut and took some of their money because they needed to pay off debt. Do you guys remember that? That was pretty insane, right? That actually happened. So you're going to be getting this nice detailed report of what is really going on and how huge it is um, because it is unfolding like crazy. The important thing that people don't know is that Burisma is also working with Kazakhstan. And one would say, mm, that's a little bit odd. Well, no, it's not. They actually are working with Kazakhstan, and they have been doing that for a while, uh, even though there have been... Uh, uh, you know, rival oligarchs, working oligarchs, um, uh, competing in this energy industry. Uh, it, it, it was a really big deal and they were lobbying too. Now, Burisma has been lobbying the U.S. government for cash and loan guarantees to support energy and sector reforms. Now, while we're speaking about billions, I want you guys to know that Burisma successfully lobbied the U.S. government and in essence, convincing per se <laughs> to have the Barack Hussein Obama's administration co-support or co-sponsor a $1 billion loan to the Ukraine with the IMF, the IMF that literally rapes nations and puts them in debt and owns them. Remember that private organization that trades Debt currency, the more debt a nation has, the more rich they are, right? So this is the most, um, I would say, intricate yet simple. It's intricate because there's so many players, but it's simple because it's in one place right now. <laughs> um and all of these people go down in one sweep. You know, I had a conversation earlier today with someone on a more local level stuff. Like, when are these people going to go to jail? Nobody's going to jail. Look at the Clintons. And it's like, you don't know what's happening in the background. I mean, all of everybody's like sitting there talking about the phone call and this and that. For two months, I've been like, yo, look, th there was nothing wrong with the phone call. We have a treaty. Hey, yo, look, uh, there was nothing. Look at what they're saying. They're telling you that they did this. This is why she got fired. This is how they got caught. This is how it happened. Now I'm telling you the person that blew the whistle on Rudy Giuliani was literally barred from entering our country until Barack Hussein Obama let him come back in in 2015 because of the atrocities and crimes against people and nations in regards to uh, theft, monopolies, coercion, extortion, embezzlement, the whole nine yards. 
See, these are things that go on in the background, and the reason you don't see it is because nobody's reporting on it. You know, uh, obviously, you know, how many people are going to be seeing my report? Not many, right? But you have to remember that this is how, you know, it kind of maneuvers. Now, I mentioned something yesterday and it's really important i've i've made it no you know hidden secret that i am uh, you know a devout greek orthodox christian so yesterday i was having a conversation again with the greek orthodox church in israel uh you know that takes care of um jesus's tomb and you know all these things when you go to visit in israel uh that are you know kept under you know um the christian custody right is under the greek church Now, here's something that the European Union did. Listen. So Greece, for example, is a country that demanded, and I I know this for a fact, um, that in order for your kid to get a birth certificate, uh, you have to baptize them with their name. So basically, my daughter, who was born there, is an American citizen, right? She was an American citizen born abroad. But I needed her birth certificate, you know, like a document that, yeah, she was born in this country at some point, right? The U.S. Embassy gave me one right away uh, because she was uh, directly put into the NICU, et cetera. Um, but, you know, to actually get her birth certificate from the registry of, you know, Greece, I had to baptize her first or else the only thing I got is female Marist. That's it. Okay, that's it. And so religion was the way, you know, was the way of the land in Greece because they were all Greek Orthodox. Their identification would identify that they're Greek Orthodox. You would label it. It would be on the back. And so that was their way and has been their way since, you know, zero AD, right? One AD. Hmm? Uh, that's the way it is. Before that, you know, I, I guess they didn't have IDs. <laughs> I'm just saying. So here's what the European Union did. It forced Greece to remove the identification uh, statement of religion. It forced them to remove the necessity for baptism, even though if you were a Muslim or a Jew and you don't baptize your kid, at that point you are able to get a birth certificate. Does that make sense? Like you could say, well, I'm not uh, Christian, so, uh, you know, Christian in general. It doesn't have to be Greek Orthodox. If you're not Christian, you're not supposed to, um, you know, wait to get the birth certificate. That was their law. You know, that's that's different countries, different things, right? Agree or not. But if you were a Muslim or a Jew and you lived in Greece and you gave birth, you'd be like, I'm Jewish. They'd be like, all right. Um, they'd give you a different type of birth certificate that would state that you are of, you know, uh, a different religion. And here is the name that you've self-declared for that child, right? That it's not like under God. It's like a different document. Okay. So what the European Union did was strip that. Now, remember, I told you that the Ukrainians, like the Russians and the Greeks, are very big on religion. They have their popes, you know, like their their um, bishops, popes, cardinals, metropolitans, all sitting on meetings. You know, they always get spiritual guidance. They always open with prayer, close with prayer, etc. Well, uh, just a, a little while back, uh, the European Union forced... The churches, the main churches of the Orthodox Christian religion, uh, to embrace this new faction of the Orthodox Christian religion called the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Now, here's the deal with this. It's kind of like telling the Catholics to acknowledge and, uh, you know, recognize that the Lutheran Church is part of Catholicism, which it's not. 
This is, I just want to make it clear because even though the name sounds similar, the denomination is completely different. So they, Greece being part of the EU had no choice. And that's one of the biggest, you know, historical Christian churches. And they were forced to comply. But the main Greek church is not in Greece. It's in Israel. And here's the thing. Democrats have been lobbying and pushing to the main historical Christian church, which is like the head, like, like the Vatican for the Catholics, for historical Christians or Orthodox Christians, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, it's there in Israel. And right now the Democrats, literally the Democrats are telling them that they need to accept the Ukrainian faction. They need to accept it as part of their church and they don't want to. They're like, no, what Greece did uh, is unacceptable. But they had no choice as they are no longer a nation. We are an independent entity and we will not allow United States Democratic officials to come here and tell us what we have to do with our religion. This is how far they're going. And you have to wonder, for me, it was like, all right, you know, they want a medal. But why now with this dumpster fire that they have in D.C., with all of this money that's going to come to the surface, with all these weird loans, with the, you know, NGOs and Clinton foundations, Obama for whatever justice or whatever you want to call it, all these things that have been going on for two decades in the Ukraine. Why would they be attacking the religious portion? I mean, it seems, you know retarded you're just like that doesn't make sense why would you light another fire and 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 go ahead and do that because they are lobbying hard like there were articles all over the press early you know late last night early in the morning uh, across the eastern med in israel talking about this overwhelming pressure that the patriarch is having and it's like why are they doing this so I, you know, I'm putting this out there to you guys, um, you know, after having conversation, because I have family that, that, that work in the church there, uh, you know, I'm still trying to wrap my head around. That's like a total joker card. Like, you're just like, all right, it's like, you know, <laughs> there's a saying in Greece, but I'm going to make it not so X-rated. It's like, oh, you know, the world's on fire, but Marjorie's combing her hair. It's kind of like that. It's like, oh, look, a fire. Let me comb my hair so it looks good. That's that's what it feels like right now. Like, why would they do it? So there's got to be something up with that, that... We all missed, including myself, because this was something that I wasn't expecting. I mean, I was involved, uh, you know, in the whole church thing of accepting it and pushing it. And it's like, you know, everyone was totally against it. The church was totally against it, but they couldn't go against it because they're not a sovereign nation anymore. And no matter how many times, you know, I say it, people still think that these countries are independent when they're not. Um, and that's something we don't understand, you know, that, that no matter how many times someone says, dude, they're not a sovereign nation, like Greece is like a state, but it's federally controlled. That's how it is. So they're, they, they, they look like, look, I'm independent, but in essence, they've got their legs chained to a wall. Um, so that's very curious because what's happening right now, uh, coming out of the Ukraine is pretty insane. And not only that. The Democrats are now lighting fires in the Mediterranean, even bigger fires. So there was this huge conference uh, for, uh, you know, southeastern uh, Europe and the eastern Mediterranean in Washington, D.C., uh, November 18th to the 19th. I, I, I 
the article that I have on Loomer.com will be published shortly uh, about it. But we had a bunch of Democrats <laughs> like Deutsch and <laughs> a bunch of people, but we did have um, – our commerce secretary there too. This um, two-day thing was to talk with Greece and other uh, Mediterranean nations that included representatives from Israel, et cetera, right? Because they're Eastern Med, Cyprus, et cetera. And we're talking like ministers of finance, of commerce, of tourism. They were all there. And see, they were all talking about the prospects of investing in the area, the prospects of bringing them out of whatever muck they're in, And the weird thing is we had ambassadors there literally telling them that whatever President Trump is pushing as his foreign policy is a lie. And they know better. And then when hostilities come from Turkey, he's going to side with Turkey and blow them all up. And I'm like, first of all, you're a former ambassador. Why are you flapping your mouth? You shouldn't be talking. Secondly, how does Deutsch know any anything like this? And why would the senator from New Jersey pop up and start talking? Oh, yeah, let me tell you about the foreign policy and President Trump in Turkey. And it's like, how are you a specialist from New Jersey? It was so weird. Um, I'll, I'm up for a break, so I'll see you guys all in a bit. We'll, we'll wrap this up and head into the Ukraine face first starting with um, Mr. Fiona Hill. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. All right. So let's... Um, let's start with the Fiona Hill uh, testimonies and... Um, and how they're all talking about Pence. And then we'll circle back to um, the Ukraine, their history, and what's really going on. So I want to start it from here, where the council is asking questions. Um, listen to David Holmes right there. Fiona Hill, by the way, she's like... She is she like is she a woman like I'm not trying to be well yeah I am trying to be mean but not because I don't like her and she's a traitor and she said herself ooh you know what maybe we should do that we should listen to her opening statement it'll tell you everything you need to know about her hold on let me get that let's see let's see let's see where is Fiona Hill's opening statement because she tells you how she worked for the USSR how. Her family, she was born in England, where George Washington's family came from, making her what? Patriotic when she's not even an American. Oh, she's American by choice, right? That's what she said. I'm an American by choice, she said. So let's take a listen to Miss Hill. Here we go. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, do I need to adjust the microphone? Um, is the microphone on? I believe it is now. Is that, is that yes, correct? Perfect. Thank you again, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Nunes and members of the committee, thank you for inviting me to testify before you today. I have a short opening statement. I appreciate the importance of Congress's impeachment inquiry, and I am appearing today as a fact witness, as I did during my deposition on October 14th, in order to answer your questions about what I saw, what I did, what I knew, and what I know with regard to the subjects of your inquiry. I believe that those who have information that the Congress deems relevant have a legal and a moral obligation to provide it. I take great pride in the fact that I'm a non-partisan foreign policy expert who has served under three Republican and Democratic presidents. 
I have no interest in advancing the outcome of your inquiry in any particular direction except toward the truth. I will not provide a long narrative statement because I believe that the interest of Congress and the American people is best served by allowing you to ask me your questions. And I'm, I'm just going to say something. As someone that has been married to someone that's British with a very strong Cockney accent, right, from East London, right, from the Bull Bells type, that came to the United States and has been here for 10 years, his accent has been subdued. Her Geordie type, you know, no type, you know, accent has not diminished. If you're working for the United States of America in the capacity of National Security Council Director of Russia, I'm sorry. When you are around people, you're, you respond by, um, uh, by way of tone. The fact that her accent is so strong, so strong, you would always detect one, right? But so strong <laughs> indicates uh, that she is not and does not say exactly who she is. I'm happy to expand upon my October 14th deposition testimony in response to your questions today. But before I do so, I'd like to communicate two things. First, I'd like to show a little bit about who I am. I'm an American by choice, having become a citizen in 2002. I was born in the northeast of England, in the same region that George Washington's ancestors came from. Both my region and my family have deep ties to the United States. My paternal grandfather fought through World War I in the Royal Field Artillery surviving being shot, shelled, and gassed before American troops intervened to end the war in 1918. During the Second World War, other members of my family fought to defend the free world from fascism alongside American soldiers, sailors, and airmen. The men in my father's family were coal miners, whose family has always struggled with poverty. So her family's deep relations are all these British officers, right, fighting wars, because they're because they fought side by side, you know, she's deeply connected to America. Listen to what she's saying. This is pandering to people that don't understand what she's doing. She's trying to uh, tell you how deeply rooted she is, how George Washington came from, you know, her little area, her town. This woman is royalty, you guys. She is a blue blood. Uh, she is lying. She is not telling you who she really is. And you have to guess at that advanced age in 2002, why would you decide to get rid of your British citizenship to become American? And a lot of people say, you can have dual citizenship. Actually, actually, my husband, who was toying with that fact, meant that he had to revoke his rights as a British citizen if he uh, claimed loyalty to the United States. So whatever she's telling you is all fabricated, and she's not telling you who she really, really is. When my father, Alfred, was 14, he joined his father, brothers, brother, uncles and cousins in the coal mines to help put food on the table. When the last of the local mines closed in the 1960s, my father wanted to emigrate to the United States to work in the coal mines in West Virginia and Pennsylvania. But his mother, my grandmother, had been crippled from hard labor, and my father couldn't leave. So he stayed in northern England until he died in 2012. My mother still lives in my hometown today. While his dream of emigrating to America was thwarted, my father loved America, its culture, its history, and its role as a beacon of hope for the world. 
He always wanted someone in the family to make it to the United States. I began my university studies in 1984, and I just learned that I went to the same university as uh, my colleague here, Mr. Holmes, in St. Andrews in Scotland. I just thought I would add that. And in 1987, I won a place on an academic exchange to the Soviet Union. Wait a minute. So, oh, yeah, we both went to St. Andrews. Totally coincidental. That's like so cool. Right. Just like the pictures we have of Carrie and Mueller being on hockey teams together <laughs> and Biden and all of them. They just all happen to go to the same schools. Are you listening? And she got a scholarship to go to the Soviet Union. Of course. I was there for the signing of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces INF Treaty. And when President Ronald Reagan met Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev in Moscow. This was a turning point for me. An American professor who I met there told me about graduate student scholarships to the United States. And the very next year, thanks to his advice, I arrived in America to start my advanced studies at Harvard. Years later, I can say with confidence that this country has offered me opportunities I never would have had in England. Right? She went from England to St. Andrews, which is not your average school, but it wasn't an opportunity. And royalty usually goes there to go to the Soviet Union. Listen to her words where she was there when all that stuff went down with Ronald. And then politician told her, hey, we have scholarships. She just so happened to just get accepted to Harvard. Of course. I grew up poor with a very distinctive working class accent in England in the 1980s and 1990s. This would have impeded my professional advancement. This background has never set me back in America. For the best part of three decades, I've built a career as a non-partisan, non-political national security professional focusing on Europe and Eurasia, and especially the former Soviet Union. I've served our country under three presidents, in my most recent capacity under President Trump, as well as in my former position under, um, as under, under my former position of National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. In that role, I was the intelligence community's senior expert on Russia and the former Soviet republics, including Ukraine. It was because of my background and experience that I was asked to join the National Security Council in 2017. At the NSC, Russia was part of my portfolio. Just so you know, okay, she stressed the fact that she's a foot soldier for the crown. <laughs> okay, poor, of course. And I can tell you that she's saying I was the expert and this is why they brought me on in 2017. No, they brought you on because you will lead us to the hive. Okay. This is how you get your enemy out. You smoke them out. You bring them close to you and then you watch them. And unfortunately you thought you were smarter because you saw that surrounding our president at the closest position, even still now you have one of your own people there. The people um, the people that wish to maintain power. And she's telling you this totally freely. If you parse through what she tells you, you're going to be like, wow, totally normal thing for a coal miner's child that really wanted to come to America but couldn't. And you decided, not because you had kids here or anything like that, at such an advanced age to actually go ahead and become a citizen here and revoke your history that you're so proud of from your humble origins. Please, guys, listen. Listen to what she tells you about her portfolio. But I was also responsible for coordinating U.S. policy for all of Western Europe, all of Eastern Europe, including Ukraine and Turkey, along with NATO and the European Union. I was hired initially by General Michael Flynn, Katie McFarland, and General Keith Kellogg. 
but then I started work in April 2017 when General McMaster was the National Security Advisor. I, and they, thought that I could help them with President Trump's stated goal of improving relations with Russia, while still implementing policies designed to deter Russian conduct that threatens the United States, including the unprecedented and successful Russian operation to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. This relates to the second thing I want to communicate. Based on questions and statements I have heard, some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country, and that perhaps, somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. This is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. The unfortunate truth is that Russia was the foreign power that systematically attacked our democratic institutions in 2016. This is the public conclusion of our intelligence agencies, confirmed in bipartisan congressional reports. Yeah, the very congressional bipartisan reports uh, from the intelligence community and the FBI that fabricated 302s, that hired people to say that it was so, and that, you know, we should supposedly blindly trust because they all said it, right? They all said it. It is beyond dispute. The same one that would leak information about conversations with presidents like in Australia, the same intelligence communities uh, that had Peter Strzok working on both ends, the same intelligence communities, you know, that got together uh, in an attempt to overthrow a duly elected president. And because they all say that and it's publicly available, you should accept it because Russia is pushing the fact that the Ukraine tried to meddle. Yes, the Ukraine tried to meddle via Hillary Clinton because they had paid her billions and billions and billions of dollars. You know, and now, if you guys remember, we were here August, September, July, right, talking about how broke the DNC is and how Amalgamated Bank just floated them $10 million. And I told you how they're in the hole over $10 million. Now everyone's like, oh, they're in the hole $7 million. No, they're in the hole way more than that. And this is why they were campaigning and raising money in foreign countries. But we should trust her and the intelligence community that orchestrated this whole coup. Correct? This is what we should do. Is she insane? I can't believe she's saying this with a straight face. But on the other hand, that's how anti-American agents operate. Even if some of the underlying details must remain classified. The impact of the successful 2016 Russian campaign remains evident today. Our nation is being torn apart. Truth is questioned. Our highly professional and expert career foreign service is being undermined. U.S. support for... Undermined? You mean you undermined our trust? You've been appointed to serve us and you're serving another master unknown to us. Ukraine, which continues to face armed Russian aggression, has been politicized. The Russian government's goal is to weaken our country, to diminish America's global role, and to neutralize a perceived U.S. threat to Russian interests. President Putin and the Russian security services aim to counter U.S. foreign policy objectives in Europe, including in Ukraine, where Moscow wishes to reassert political and economic dominance. Okay, so let me stop right there. So I want you to know it was the European Union that actually sparked that fire between the Ukraine to move away from Russia, right? It was the European Union that started this whole orange revolution. That's what they call it. 
So the conflict between the Ukraine and Russia resulted in the uh, so-called annexation of Crimea and the autonomy of the Russian-speaking regions of the U- uh, of the Ukraine. And it, what people need to understand is that the weak uh, European Union uh, military right is try is trying right now to negotiate lower prices for russian gas uh because you know europe relies on russia for gas they're like negotiating so now the european union is pushing the ukraine which they created this animosity remember how um you know osama bin laden um, encouraged uh, the Chechens to do this Russian jihad, and then that never went away. It was like this animosity that was, uh, you know, deeply embedded. We hate the Russians. We hate this. This is the same thing in the Ukraine. So right now, it was only yesterday that the European Union kind of recommended, strongly recommended to Kiev to return to Russian direct gas markets at a total of 15 billion cubic meters by 2020 to reduce the cost of reverse gas purchases of the same gas. So basically, uh, instead of them getting it from pipelines that are coming in through Turkey, which means, you know, they, Turkey gets it from Russia and then Turkey gives it to the EU and then, you know, they have to pay a fee. Um, they want the Ukraine to buy all of this to help them. And now, uh, I wanted to say that at, in, in Brussels, uh, um, the TAS agency actually said that the, the, the EU-Ukraine negotiations are ongoing. There is a pending meeting between President Putin and President Zelensky. Um, you know, obviously, President Putin has said really nice things about Zelensky because he wants to work together. And they're working together is, hey, let me help you get out from under the teat of the European Union. And the European Union is feeling that. So they have appointed, listen, Kazakhstan to host and mediate their conversation. And it's like, why do you need a mediator when these two presidents can just sit down and talk? Okay, listen. So this is really, really important. The fear that the European Union has right now after they pushed, they pushed, they literally pushed up against them and said, you need to buy more gas from Russia for us. You need to buy this much because we're paying too much for gas. So the EU is pushing them to do it now. Um and the return to direct markets between the Ukraine and Russia, you know, the Ukraine getting Russian gas um, is a lot more beneficial for Russia um, to use Ukraine's gas transport system to promote gas in Europe because it would, you know, kind of help on better pricing uh, to challenge the U.S. economy. OK, the Ukrainian side is trying themselves to offset the increase in gas due to its refusal to buy directly from Russia through increased tariffs. So that's you got to understand right now. The Ukraine, um, even though they're all dirty, they've all been embedded in corruption, they're all deep in there. They elected a president that was a comedian, like for real, he was a comedian. Uh, he won by over 75% totally fixed election. They thought they had their guy. And President Trump has gone in there and literally dropped an A-bomb, annihilating everything the, the globalists had created. And Russia was being 
penalized um, and forced to work with the Ukraine in regards to gas. Uh, the Ukraine, though, sparked, you know, this war and whatnot. So they all relied on Turkey. And now with Turkey coming at arms with the European Union and Macron saying the NATO's dead. This is dumb. This is this. And Iran not going with sanctions. Guys, it is a hot mess. And like I told you, it comes down to Turkey because now the European Union's like, you know what? Forget Turkey. We don't need to get stuff from their pipelines. Move it, Ukraine. You're going to get it from them. And they're like, but they're our enemy. Why would we give them money? Well, if you're not going to do it, then you're going to have more tariffs and you're going to be paying a lot for your own energy. So they have their own natural gas and yet they're paying tariffs on their own natural gas because they refuse to allow them, you know, Russia to transfer gas through the Ukrainian pipelines. Like this is legit what's happening. And today, by the way, you remember that ship? in the strait that Russia confiscated. Well, they got it back and all the, the media in the United Kingdom was like, oh my gosh, it came back looking like a wreck. They totally destroyed this shit. It was hilarious. But I want to play a clip from where President Trump, um, you know, said that he hopes that the Ukrainian president and Putin meet. Listen to him. Listen to what he says. Continue. Can you assure that it will continue in the future? Well, we're working with Ukraine, and we want other countries to work with Ukraine. When I say work, I'm referring to money. They should put up more money. We put up a lot of money. I gave you anti-tank busters that, frankly, President Obama was sending you pillows and sheets. And I gave you anti-tank busters, and a lot of people didn't want to do that, but I did it. And I really hope that Russia, because I really believe that President Putin would like to do something, I really hope that you and President Putin get together and can solve your problem. That would be a tremendous achievement. And I know you're trying to do that. President, Mr. President, did you ask the House Speaker to find a way? You said that you would look into uh, Joe Biden. You would ask your prosecutor to look into the matter. Well, I think, no, I haven't, but I think that, I think this, I think that somebody, if you look at what he did, it's so bad, where his son, he goes to China, he walks away with a billion and a half dollars, he goes to Ukraine and he walks away with $50,000 a month and a lot of money in addition to that, and the whole thing with the prosecutor in Ukraine, and he's on tape. This isn't like, maybe he did it, maybe he didn't. He's on tape doing this. I saw this a while ago. I looked at it and I said, that's incredible. I've never seen anything like that. Now, either he's dumb or he thought he was in a room full of really good friends. Or maybe it's a combination of both in his case. I heard your question. Thank you very much. Don't cry. I mean that we have independent country and independent general security. I can't push anyone, you know. That's it. That is the question. That is the answer. So I didn't call somebody or the new general security. I didn't ask him. I didn't push him. That's it. Do you feel obligated to fulfill your promises to President Trump? Obligated to do what? Зобов'язаний про що? Дам я нікому нічого не винен. Ви всі розумієте. Україна... Ви двічі, принаймні, казали, що ви будете розслідувати це розслідування? Я сказав, що ми готові розслідувати. Україна – незалежна країна і Генеральна прокуратура. Ви самі знаєте, у нас новий Руслан Рябашапка, дуже гарна, чесна людина. Ви знаєте, із освітою, із західним досвідом. І чи буде він розглядати? Він повинен розглядати будь-які справи. 
Які тут можуть бути обіцянки? А? Я впевнений, що у нього є, ви в мене вибачте, але у нас є своя країна, Україна. У нас набагато є важливіших, багато більше важливіших, дійсно, дуже важливих питань. І ви знаєте, це справи, це дійсно справи, які, які дуже важливі для кожного українця. Це Іловайс, це Майдан, це корупція, про яку зараз говорив президент Трамп. І ви знаєте, над чим він працює. So what did he say? He was, first of all, he scolded the press uh, person and said, well, hold on a second. What do you mean, you know, promises? Are you talking about promises in, you know, our cooperation as governments? Like you have to be more clear. You can't just say promises and then run with it and do this. And then he's like, are you referring to the Ukraine's promises of what they're delivering to their own people? Are you talking about our relationship? He was really PO'd because he understands the trap. But the key thing from that whole chit-chat was that the president said, well, maybe it was a combination of both. So how is this going to play out? A lot of us want everyone taken down in one sweep, and so do I. But the way you can actually execute a one sweep is by demonstrating that the media has been working hand in hand with the corrupt left. In order to do that, we have to let them set it up. They're all, you know, this Russia hoax is in their face. You know, every time someone says, well, we're honest. Well, what about the Russia hoax? You know, they shut up. You're the one that was talking about the Russia hoax. And then they shut up. So now at this point, with this whole Ukraine pushing the impeachment, having criminals, because right now CNN and MSNBC have people on their screens, right, in your home, in your hotel, in the airport, in, in anywhere that are currently you know, going to be indicted soon. They're being deliberated in grand juries. They have people that have completely cost us trust in a system that is supposed to be there to protect us. The FBI, the intelligence community, they're all supposed to be there to protect us. And it seems that their only job is to protect their interests. And what's even weirder is you don't understand what type of interest it is that they're protecting. Is it money? I mean, come on. Is it worth just money? A legacy? Like, what is it that they are protecting? That is the question that we want to know answered, right? That's, that's a key question. What drives them? What is the interest to maintain their click, their dominance? Of course. But for what reason? Like, what is your bottom line? Because, you know, for example, in a high school clique where they're dominant, what do they want? Oh, they want to have like the best lunch table or front row seats or people admiring them. What makes them tick is the question. And none of us can answer that. I mean, most of us can't answer that. On that note, I'm going to see you all shortly, right after this break. We'll continue on the Ukraine. Real news.
Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori, and this is the second hour of our show, and we're going to continue talking about these hearings, the Ukraine, and trying to parse through what seems really, really intricate, but it's pretty much, if you take it down to a base level of social constructs in, uh, you know, elementary, middle school, and high school, kind of is the same. Only thing is, the motivator, the underlying motivator isn't the best lunch table or the best girls or, you know, people looking up to you and, you know, handing over their lunch money. Uh, it's something more nefarious and, and deeper. And globally, there may be about a hundred thousand of them collectively. Uh, that is nothing compared to the mass size of the population that they wish to control. And it's almost the same thing you see, like I said, in school. It's a handful of jocks and cheerleaders, you know, like in the movies, not saying that all of them are like this, that do that upon the rest of the school, right? So it's like 10 versus 800. Uh, on this scale, they're even smaller in group, yet they're very, very efficient, right? Very efficient, which is, you know, it, it makes you wonder, right? How are they so efficient. And, you know, a going theme, like I said, from the beginning of the show is that all these people that we're seeing parading into uh, the this circus, you know, where Adam Schiff is the ringleader. And uh, what I what I was talking about on in in that conference, uh, November 18th uh, through 19th, it seems like, you know, People that are foreign service officers, State Department employees, all of these people are the ones that are dictating our foreign policy. And it's like, who do you think you are? Dude, you're a rank and file compared to the president. The only person that sets foreign policy is the president of the United States. I say it again, is the president of the United States. His policy is the same, foreign and domestic, America first. And they don't like that because their underlying, um, I guess, uh, needs that they are trying to meet in some way are um, overwhelming for them. Now, let's continue on this impeachment query and take a listen to what else Fiona has to tell us before we fast forward to the insane phone call that, you know, he only remembered the part that Schiff wanted him to remember. I say this not as an alarmist, but as a realist. I do not think long-term conflict with Russia is either desirable or inevitable. Nobody I cares. I continue to believe that we need to seek ways of stabilizing our relationship with Moscow even as we counter their efforts to harm us. Okay, so we don't need to stabilize anything. Well, yeah, we do. We need to stabilize a lot of things, but what we don't need to do is saying what our policy should be. You can put your request in writing, and that's about it. You're not allowed to dictate foreign policy. You can suggest, but it's just a suggestion because we elected the man that's making the decisions. Let's fast forward here. You know, I was obviously at your deposition, I've read your opening testimony, but as you learn more facts, you start to see things in different light, uh, even though your opening statement is very much consistent with your opening statement during the deposition. And I was struck in particular by something you said on page 10 of your opening statement. While we had advised our Ukrainian counterparts to voice a commitment to following the rule of law and generally investigating credible corruption allegations, this was a demand that President Zelensky personally commit on a cable news channel to a specific investigation of President Trump's political rival. Uh, this gets to a point I made at the close of our hearing yesterday about hypocrisy. Um, here we are, and we are urging Ukrainians to commit to following the rule of law, as you said. 
and only investigate genuine and credible allegations. And what are we doing? We're asking them to investigate the president's political rival. Ukrainians are pretty sophisticated actors, aren't they? Um, they can recognize hypocrisy when they see it. What does that do to our anti-corruption efforts when the Ukrainians perceive that we're engaging in corruption ourselves? Yes, sir. So our long-standing policy is to encourage them to establish and build uh, rule-of-law institutions that are capable and that are independent and that can actually pursue credible allegations. Uh, that's our policy. We've been doing that for quite some time with some success. Um, so focusing on particular cases, including particular cases where there is a, a, a interest of the president's, um, it's just not part of what we've done. Uh, it's hard to explain why uh, we would do that. Well, it harkens back to that conversation Ambassador uh, Volker testified about when he urged Ukraine not to investigate or prosecute Poroshenko, and the reply from Mr. Yermak was, oh, you mean like you want us to do with the Bidens and the Clintons? Um, they're sophisticated enough actors to recognize when we're saying do as we say, not as we do, are they not? Yes, sir. You also, in your uh, testimony, and I was struck by this anew today, um, when even after the aid is lifted, Ukraine still felt pressure to make these statements. Uh, and you and Ambassador Taylor were worried that they were going to do it on CNN. And you said uh, that Ambassador Taylor again stressed the importance of staying out of the U.S. politics and said he hoped no, interviews, no interview was planned. Mr. Yermark did not answer but shrugged in resignation, as if to indicate that they had no choice. In short, everyone thought there was going to be an interview and that the Ukrainians believed they had to do it. Um, so you're acknowledging, I think, Mr. Holmes, are you not, that Ukraine very much felt pressured to undertake these investigations that the President Rudy Giuliani and Ambassador Sondland and others were demanding? Yes, sir. And although the hold on the security assistance may have been lifted, there were still things they wanted that they weren't getting, including a meeting with the president in the Oval Office. Um, whether the hold, uh, the security assistance hold continued or not, the Ukrainians understood that that's something the president wanted, and they still wanted important things from the president. Um, so I think that continues to this day. I think. But we did hear. Let's let's hear it again because I think that maybe we missed it. Um, where President Zelensky said, um, "Hold on, let me just fast forward to President Zelensky." So we don't. There we go. Here we go. To do something, I really hope that you and President Putin get together and can solve your problem. That would be a tremendous achievement, and I know you're trying to do that. Mr. President, did you ask the House? I can't push anyone, you know, that's it, that is the question, that is the answer. So I didn't call somebody or the new general security, I didn't ask him, I didn't push him, that's it. He said it, but, you know, um, obviously David Holmes may have overheard a conversation of President Zelensky's too, because he's got supersonic hearing. I think they're being very careful. They still need us uh, now going forward. In fact, right now, President Zelensky is trying to arrange a summit meeting with President Putin uh, in the coming weeks to his first face-to-face -face meeting with him to try to advance the peace process. Um, he needs our support. He needs, he needs uh, President Putin to understand that America supports Zelensky at the highest levels. Um, so there, this, is, this, is, this doesn't end with the lifting of the security assistance hold. Um, Ukraine still needs us and, ha and, as I said, still fighting this war this very day.
Well, and I would underscore again, as my colleague did so eloquently, they got caught. Um, that's the reason the aid was finally lifted. Um, Mr. Goldman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Good morning to both of you. Yesterday we heard testimony from Ambassador Gordon Sondland uh, from the European Union, who testified that President Trump wanted Ukraine to announce the investigations into Biden, the Bidens of Burisma and the 2016 elections because they would benefit him politically, and that he used the leverage of that White House meeting and the security assistance to pressure President Zelensky to do so. Dr. Hill, you testified. What? So he made a statement. He pressured him. He took it off the table and tell me about it. Are you guys kidding? Like, are we listening to the same thing? That's not a question, counselor. That's leading and that's making a statement um, to get the answer you want. So now I want to hop forward uh, to the Democrat side of things um, quickly as we arrive there. Hold on. There we go. Schiff is back. Let's see. There we go. Let's get that because that's the most recent portion of it where the Democrats are coming back. Here we go. Sondland was more explicit. Ukraine needed to conduct investigations if they were to get a meeting at all. Bolton directed Dr. Hill to report this to NSC legal advisor John Eisenberg, telling her, you go and tell Eisenberg that I am not part of whatever drug deal Sondland and Mulvaney are cooking up on this. And you go ahead and tell him what you've heard and what I've said. Dr. Hill did so, as did Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who separately approached the same lawyers with his concerns. On July 18, the day before Dr. Hill left her post at the NSC, Holmes participated in a secure interagency video conference on Ukraine. Towards the end of the meeting, a representative from the Office of Management and Budget announced that the flow of nearly $400 million dollars and security assistance for Ukraine was being held up. The order had come from the president and had been conveyed to OMB by acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney without further explanation. So the fact that we didn't give them $400 million uh, because we didn't know where it was going, right, and we wanted to make sure it was going where it was supposed to be going because when this thing comes out, you guys, it's insane. The stuff I have is insane. The money I, I, I have seen move from these organizations going into the Clinton Foundation. Guys, Obama was 100% part of this. This is the way they were funding themselves. And by the way, I just wanted to put a little um, hiatus here, just a hiatus. The Justice Department just announced that they, you know, indicted um, Ashke uh, for, um, say it, for... Uh, fixing prices on foreign currency and becoming rich. Now, we saw a barrage of banks paying fines. Keep in mind, all of these investigations happened under the Obama administration. I want to repeat, under the Obama administration. Now, these tools of brokers that took advantage of it, these investment bankers, institutional uh, you know, brokers, uh, made money. They were simply the lower end of the totem pole for them to do their job. But hopefully right after Thanksgiving, okay, um, because I will be completely like gone, uh, you know, Thanksgiving day, uh, you know, uh, the day after Thanksgiving. So Thursday, Friday, I will choose shows from last year to air because I'm going to be preoccupied with my kid coming home. But I want to tell you that that weekend, that right after that weekend, I am dropping one of the biggest, uh, you know, A-bombs 
of information. I will show you how they created a parallel network, right, to obfuscate the Barclays Bank, the JP Morgan, uh, the Parabes Bank, you know, where they whipped them into submission with fines so they can be part of this whole network, right? They caught them in an insurance policy so that way they can maintain their power. And what if I told you that this time it's not some schmuck, you know, that's been that, you know, grew in ranks from stockbroker to institutional broker or some, you know, you know, a cow licked, you know, hair to the side, you know, uh, you know, tool from, you know, that's a silver spoon coming out of Wharton, walking into JP Morgan and is an institutional broker. We're talking FBI. We're talking intelligence. I kid you not. This is massive. And this is what they've been planning. And now this Ukraine coming out with just that 7.4 billion, which I already told you about. I reported that to you over a week ago. I even cited the criminal indictments, but not all of them are referring to the $7.4 billion that Interfax reported. It is a lot more money. You're going to see how China's involved. You're going to see how what they're saying is that, oh, Russia's going to benefit from doing this to the Ukraine. They're not. Actually, Russia was the victim of all of these things, right? And now the EU is showing their teeth by forcing the Ukraine to submit to Russia in a way of appeasement. And this is why they're trying to come in between President Zelensky and President Putin so they don't talk together alone. So that is a very big deal. You know what I would have loved to see is President Trump mediate that conference and say, hey, why don't you both come to the United States and talk? It's going to be safer for you. (laughs) But you know what? Then they're going to say, oh, look, President Trump is colluding with Russia and the Ukraine. So we can't do that, can we? Even though it would afford them a safe environment. Instead, they have Kazakhstan, which, by the way, is the um, headquarters for the European Council. I kid you not. They're not even part of the European Union, but the headquarters for the European Council is in Kazakhstan. Uh, guys, this is so huge. Like I said, Hiroshima is the Ukraine for the Democratic Party. They are toast they are done and the only way that we can unravel this aside from the fact of money 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 i mean most liberals most idiots right idiots that that watch you know that idiot box of a tv with all these talking heads you know don't know what it means to have all this money that's theirs that 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 someone works so hard for being used to line their own pockets and push agendas to enslave future this generation and future generations. That's what's disheartening right now. So we just need to be patient and understand that it's game on now and there's no going back. And what we have to use is alternative ways to expose the media collusion because the minute we can clearly show that the mainstream media has been working with them in tangent, uh, keeping the message on, obfuscating, you know, truth, kind of like, hey, I buried the Epstein story. Hey, I buried the Bernie Fine tape. Hey, I buried this too. Um, suddenly things will start to happen and they will happen without uproar.
Because right now, if we throw Hillary Clinton in jail or Joe Biden in jail, it's tyranny. How dare he just chuck him in jail? And this is where we need to show how all of these executives of CNN, you know, sat there with their pinkies raised with people like Epstein, with people like Prince Andrew, with people that you are now understanding are very nefarious. Holmes, unaware of the hold prior to the call, was shocked. He thought the suspension of aid was extremely significant, undermining what he had understood to be long-standing U.S. national security goals in Ukraine. One week later, on July 25th, President Trump spoke with President Zelensky by phone. When President Zelensky brought up U.S. military support and noted that Ukraine would like to buy more Javelin anti-tank missiles from the United States, Trump responded by saying, I would like you to do us a favor, though. Trump then requested that Zelensky investigate the discredited conspiracy theory that Ukraine interfered in the 2016 election. Even more ominously, Trump asked Zelensky to look into the Bidens. Neither request had been included in the official talking points for the call prepared by the NSC staff, but both were in Donald Trump's personal interest. Skipping ahead, let's get the Republicans to question them. Holmes just smirked. He just smirked. Oh, my gosh. Wipe that smirk off your face, dude. Look at the media. Oh, my gosh. They're, like, all up in their face. So crazy. This just happened, so let's take a listen to what they have to say. Sixteen. But you don't remember the date. Wait, let's, let's, there we go. Schiff looks really, really nervous. I've, he's nervous. He's so nervous. So I'll start with you, uh, Mr. Holmes. Uh, have you met with or do you know Alexandra Chalupa? Uh, thank you. Holmes, could you put your microphone on? No. Do you know Nellie Orr? Have you met with no. Nellie Orr? Bruce Orr? No. Glenn Simpson? No. Thank you. Uh, same question for you, Dr. Hill. Uh, do you know or have you met with Alexandra Chalupa? No. Nellie Orr? No. Bruce Orr? Only in the course of my previous position as the National Intelligence Officer for Russia, where he attended some of the meetings that I presided over. Years ago? That's a long time ago, correct. Glenn Simpson? No. Okay. You just Hill, lied. All of them lied. You said that, uh, in your deposition, excuse me, uh, that Christopher Steele uh, was your counterpart at one time. Is this correct? That's correct, yes. Uh, you testified that you met with Christopher Steele in 2016. I assume that's still correct? That's correct, yes. And the only thing we didn't get on that is, uh, do you know about when that was in 2016 and how many times? I'm afraid I don't. I actually had met with him. Well, you asked me actually in the deposition when the most recent time that I had met with him in 2016. Mm-hmm. And he retired from the British Intelligence Services in 2009, which is right. the same I'm time asking about 2016. 2016, I don't recall. But I did meet with him some times before 2016. But you don't remember the date? I don't, I'm afraid, no. Okay. You stated in your deposition that a colleague had showed you the Steele dossier before it was published. Uh, who was that colleague? 
That was one of my colleagues at the Brookings Institution. And who, who was that? Uh, that was um, the Brookings Institution President Strobe Talbot, who had been sent a copy of this. And he shared it with you? That was the day before it was published in BuzzFeed. You mentioned in your deposition also that you thought that it was a, let's get the exact quote, that the dossier uh, was a rabbit hole. Is that still your testimony? That's correct. Do you, do you know who paid Christopher Steele to do, uh, to generate the Steele dossiers? There were several of them. At the time, I did not know. I understand from the media that it was uh, through GPS fusion, if that's not correct. Um, you yeah. know who was, and there was a law firm involved, but you know who the source of the money was? I didn't at the time. No, I did not. But do you well, know well, who Well, now I've read it in the reports, and uh, thanks to your colleagues as well, that it was the, uh, the DNC, as I'm led to believe. And the Clinton campaign? I don't know that for sure. Okay. Mr. Castro. Good afternoon. Welcome back uh, from lunch. Hope you had some sandwiches or something delicious. Hope you um, do, too. <laughs> um, Dr. Hill, thank you for your service. Also, thank you for your participation in the deposition on October 14th, Columbus Day. We were, we were with you most of the day, so I appreciate that. Um, Mr. Holmes, thank you as well. Uh, you're a, a late entrant into, uh, into this um, clown show uh, situation, um, and, and things sure did escalate quickly. Uh, we, we spoke with you last Friday night about a, a, what we thought was going to be a 30-second vignette about a two-minute phone call, and, and um, it turns out you, you know, with your 40-minute opener today, you have a lot of uh, information to share, so we appreciate you being uh, here. Uh, Dr. Hill, you, your last day at the National Security Council was uh, uh, July 19th, is that correct? That's correct, yes. So um, you weren't involved with the July 25th call, and you, you weren't involved with any of the um, relevant activities related to the, the pause and the aid? I was not. That's correct. Um, and as of July 19th, did you believe that a call was going to be scheduled for the, the 25th? I personally did not believe that it was going to be scheduled that date, no. And what was, what was the thinking at the NSC uh, as of July 19th about such a call? Well, I've learned from other depositions, to be uh, uh, clear here, that uh, perhaps there was some awareness that there might be a call. Uh, Ambassador Sunderland, if you may recall, showed an exchange with the person who was taking over from my position, Tim Morrison, in which he indicated that there would be a call coming up. I was not aware of that. Okay. Were you so in favor? there were differences, let's just say, obviously, in understanding about that call. And were you in favor of, of such a call as of the 19th? Actually, I was not, and I did say something about that in the opening part of the sessions today. Okay. And how about uh, Ambassador Bolton, to your knowledge? Well, I know that Ambassador Sondland said in that email uh, that Bolton was in agreement. To my knowledge, Bolton was not in agreement at that particular juncture, and to my knowledge. Do you know what his opposition was? It was based on the fact that he didn't feel the call had been properly prepared, and as I said earlier, that we wanted to make sure that there was going to be a fulsome bilateral U.S.-Ukraine agenda that was discussed, which is usual with these calls. And um, you, were you surprised that a call ultimately was scheduled? I was when I learned about it. That's right. And did you have any communications with anyone back at your old staff with, about how that came to be? I did not, no. Okay. Um, you, you did learn about the, the pause in the security assistance aid. Um, I learned about that on July 18th, so the day before I left. That's okay. correct. And um, there were several meetings about this, um, I believe you testified to? 
I said that I knew there was going to be a meeting in that uh, time frame, and there was one put onto the schedule for the Can following I just, week. But of course- I'm just going to stop it right here because there's a little discrepancy here, and I want you guys to hear it. So right before he starts his questions, uh, listen to – she just said that she knew the day before she left that there was going to be a pause in eight. But look at what she, she said when he started to just ask her the first questions. This is how you catch him in a lie. Listen. The um- – Relevant activities related to the, the pause and the aid? I was not. That's correct. Um, oh, wait. Let me just go further because it Lynn has Simpson. to, you have yeah. to hear all of it. Okay. Wait. Gosh darn it. I have to like be very sensitive with this cursor because he asked her, when was your last day? Oh, it was the 19th. You, you know, with your 40 minute opener today, you have you were you were a lot of- there. You left on the 19th. Okay, that was your last day. So you didn't know anything about, you know, um, the July 25th call. No, 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 I didn't. You didn't know anything about the pause and aid. No, 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 I didn't. But then she goes and says, yeah, I heard about it on July 18th, the day before I left. Listen. The, um, relevant activities related to the, the pause and the aid. Wait, I was not. Gosh, darn it. I missed um, it again. Shoot. Uh, I hate Nick this. Holmes, could you okay. put your microphone on? He totally no. said you only had nothing to say, no. Holmes, and now you had like a 40-minute opener. Like you have a lot to say. Trent, okay. here we go. Into uh, into this. Um, okay, now pay attention. Uh, situation um, and, and things sure did escalate quickly. Uh, we, we spoke with you last Friday night about a, a what we thought was going to be a 30-second vignette about a two-minute phone call and and. Um, it turns out you, you know, with your 40-minute opener today, you have a lot of uh, information to share. So we appreciate you being uh, here, uh, Dr. Hill. You, your last day at the National Security Council was uh, Listen, July 19th. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. So um, you weren't involved with the July 25th call, and you, you weren't involved with any of the um, relevant activities related to the the pause and the aid. I was not. That's correct. Um, and. As of July 19th, did you believe that a call was going to be scheduled for the... Hold on. Did you hear that? You heard that, right? And then she said... Many capacities previously. um, You know, his bio, he's been the ambassador to NATO. Anyone back at your old staff with... Right here, where she admits that she did know. I did not know. Um, You you did learn about the the pause and the security assistance aid. um, I learned about that on July 18th, so the day before I left. That's correct. And... Um, there were several meetings about this, um, I believe you testified to. I said that I knew there was going to be a meeting in that uh, time frame, and there was one put onto the schedule for the following week. But, of course, I had left, and so I didn't attend that. And is it fair to say that it stops and starts in, in aid like this sometimes do happen? That's correct. Um, and I believe you testified that there was a freeze put on all kinds of aid and assistance because it was in the process um, at that time, there were significant reviews of foreign assistance going on? That's also correct, yes. And what else can you tell us about that? About the foreign assistance yeah. review? Um, as I understood, um, there had been a directive uh, for a whole-scale um, review of our foreign policy, uh, foreign policy assistance and the ties uh, uh, between um, our foreign policy objectives and the assistance. This had been going on actually for many months and in the period when I was wrapping up my time there, uh, there had been more scrutiny than specific um, assistance to specific sets of countries as a result of that overall view, uh, review. And uh, at this time as well, uh, Ambassador Volker, Ambassador Sondland, they had, they had become a little bit more involved with Ukraine policy? 
Well, Ambassador Volker was always involved in Ukraine policy, at least uh, since the beginning of his appointment as the special envoy for uh, negotiations towards uh, the war between Ukraine and Russia in Donbass. What can you tell us about Ambassador Volker? Ambassador Bolka is uh, an extraordinary accomplished diplomat. I've worked with him in many capacities previously. Um, you know his bio. He's been the ambassador to NATO. Um, he's um, had a number of positions um, at the State Department. And actually, I know him personally. So, you know, in the truth um, that um, we're trying to get at it, who knows who and who's met. I know Ambassador Volker really well on a personal level as well. Okay. And you said he's a man of integrity. That's correct. And always acted in the best interest of the United States? Absolutely, yes. When did you first learn of Ambassador Sondland's involvement? Well, it came in different ways. Um, Ambassador Sondland, as the ambassador to the EU, had some perfectly logical involvement in the Ukraine portfolio. We work very closely with the European Union um, on matters related to Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainian um, uh, dialogue with Russia was in uh, a format uh, known as uh, the Minsk process, which was led by the French and the Germans. And Ambassador Volker uh, was uh, trying to find out ways in which he could work closely with the French and Germans to move along uh, the, on the resolution of the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And uh, obviously the European Union, uh, as the umbrella organization uh, for Europe in terms of funding and assistance, uh, was heavily active in uh, offering uh, financial assistance to the Ukrainian government as well as humanitarian assistance in the conflict. So it's perfectly logical that Ambassador Son. I just wanted to point out, did you see how she said that the European Union is the umbrella organization? In other words, federal assistance, okay? That's how we need to relate it so we understand. There's like federal assistance and state assistance. State assistance is from your own country, federal uh, from your own state, and federal is from your whole country. So again, the Ukraine is a state, the EU is the country. So... I just wanted to clarify that uh, so you understand that. Donald would play some kind of role as our ambassador to the European Union. Uh, did you have any concerns when, um, when he presented himself uh, to you as uh, somebody with a major role? I did at the time in which he presented it uh, to me. This was after Ambassador Ivanovich had been uh, pushed out of her position. And it was at that juncture that out. Ambassador Sondland's role seem to uh, grow larger. And did you express any concerns to him directly? I did express concerns to him directly. What were those concerns? I asked him uh, quite bluntly in a meeting that we had in uh, June um, of, uh, of 2019. So this is after the presidential inauguration when I'd seen that he had started to step up in much more of a proactive um, role on uh, Ukraine. Uh, you know, what was his role here? And he said that he was in charge of Ukraine. And I said, well, who put you in charge, uh, Ambassador Sondland? And he said, the president. Did that surprise you when he told you that? It did surprise me. Uh, we'd had no directive. Um, we hadn't been told this. Ambassador Bolton um, had never indicated in any way that he yeah. thought that uh, Ambassador Sondland was playing a leading role in Ukraine. Right. I, I believe you used the term um, a large remit, that he characterized he had been given a large remit from the president. Uh, I can't remember what I said, remit, but it was portfolio. He was constantly, you know, these are all synonyms. Um, he was talking to us um, about the fact that he'd been given a very broad portfolio by the president. He said his job was to go out and make deals in Europe 
And as you know yourself, I listened to his testimony yesterday very carefully as well. He said that anything uh, that had to do with the EU itself and the European Union member states was within his portfolio. We asked Ambassador Sondland about that at his deposition, and he, he conceded that he may have been spinning a little bit when he said that uh, the president uh, specifically gave him that role, and he uh, indicated that his authority was coming at least a little bit from more from the Secretary of State. At any point in time, was that related to you? At different points, um, he mentioned talking directly to the Chief of Staff Mulvaney, and he also uh, talked about Secretary Pompeo. But he was very um, – in fact, there were other people in the room in the meeting in which he uh, asserted this to me, that it was the President who had put him in charge of this. Uh, were you encouraged as of your, your last date, day in the office that U.S. policy towards the Ukraine was headed in the right direction? I was not. And why was that? Well, I was concerned um, about two things in particular. Uh, one was, uh, again, the removal of our ambassador. And again, I will say for the record that the President has a perfect right to remove any ambassador at any time for any reason. But I was very concerned about the circumstances in which her reputation had been maligned repeatedly on television and in all kinds of exchanges. I felt that that was completely unnecessary. If the President wanted to remove an ambassador, which he did quite frequently, there was a number of ambassadors removed who were not political but career officials. That was done, but without these kinds of interventions. I wondered what that message uh, was being sent. So the- yeah, you know, not a lot of ambassadors have paid prepaid rent for, uh, you know, ISIS leaders in Georgia. Uh, not a lot of ambassadors uh, self-nominate themselves as gatekeepers for the Department of Justice and have to filter data before it gets to the United States. Not a lot of ambassadors will sit there and negotiate military-industrial complex deals with banks like the Rothschilds Bank. And, you know, Amy Klobuchar really quiet lately. And you know why? Amy Klobuchar, Poland. Poland's daddy is actually the director of Rothschilds Bank. Oh, yeah, wait. And that's also involved in that $7.4 billion. Wonder what they were doing in the Ukraine on New Year's Eve in 2016, right? There was that. And then on the second uh, front, it was very clear at this point that there was, uh, let's just say, a different channel in operation in relations to Ukraine, one that was domestic and political in nature, and that was very different from the channel or the loop, however you like it, that I and my colleagues were in, where we were focused on bilateral relations and U.S. foreign policy towards Ukraine. And these two things had diverged at this point. In the run-up to Ambassador Ivanovich's separation from post, did you have any communications with officials at the State Department about your concerns? I did. And who did you relate those concerns to? I related those concerns directly to my counterpart, who was Acting Assistant Secretary Phil Rico, who I know you've spoken to. I also spoke to uh, David Hale in the context of you know, larger meetings about many other issues. I mean, again, I covered a broad portfolio myself, and we often uh, would talk about individual items. And I had private discussions um, with um, Deputy Secretary Sullivan, and he, of course, has uh, appeared before committees here in the course of his um, nomination to be ambassador to Russia and has spoken about that himself. Okay. And you, you advocated to all those officials uh, about your concerns about the information being spread about Ambassador Yovanovitch? I did. That's correct. Um, 
the Trump administration uh, changed courses from its predecessor and provided lethal defensive assistance to the Ukraine. Were you in favor of uh, arming the Ukrainians with the javelins? I was not initially in 2015 before I joined the government, and um, I'm sure that many people on the committee have seen that I wrote an opinion piece uh, with a colleague at the Brookings Institution um, in that juncture, because I was very worried at that uh, particular um, point in time that the Ukrainian military was not in a fit state to really take on board sophisticated weapons. Okay, let me tell you about these weapons. All right, so do you know why they didn't want the Ukraine to be armed? Because they, they wanted them to be dependent on the European Union. So they didn't want them to have arms, you know, sourced and given to them by us because that's enabling them to be independent. When you want to control someone, you um, uh, disallow them from being independent. And that was the whole driving factor on this. Now, you would think to yourself, well, why? I mean, if that's totally blatant. Well, they had them buy it on the black market so they can make some money, right? We have this military industrial complex where we set up, let's buy weapons and tanks and missiles on another market. We're not just going to give it to you for free, which would then make them ask for money and loans. And those loans are, again, from the EU. And the EU would control how much money they have, and they'd be making money. So would the U.S., the Barack Hussein Obama administration, their officials would be making money selling all these weapons. In essence, they would have weapons, but they would be minimal. Why don't they want to arm them? Because it's volatile. Why don't they want uh, President Zelensky and President Putin to meet? Because it's volatile. What's volatile? The fact that they're slaves to the European Union, the fact that they are owned by the European Union, and the fact that their break from the USSR has been no different ever since entering the European Union. So if you arm them and they decide, you know what, we're not doing this EU thing, we're, we're, we're exiting out of the EU, and the EU says, you can't do that, we own you, we're going to take over. Remember, they did that with martial law. Remember the martial law that happened last year? Oh, so this is how it works. You keep them under your thumb. You know the weapons they have. They bought it from you. You have more, and you're like, you're going to do this, or else you're in trouble. Remember the uproar? Remember all of this? 13,000 people are dead by Donbass, right? Because those are Ukrainians that want to remain Ukrainians, independent, but sharing history with Russia, because you can't eradicate a long history with something. It's like, it's, it's insane to even think about it. It's like, say, um, you know, Baja, California, right? Wants to split from Mexico. We want to be independent. We're creating a wall and, you know, we're not, you know, together. Well, you, you, you can create a wall. You can create that independence, but you're still, you still have relations, deep seated relations, your history, everything. You can't just eradicate it and become enemies. That's where it gets poisoned. And that's where the weakest one gets taken advantage of. And in this case, it's the European Union taking advantage of the Ukraine. Or, um, offensive weapons. And I worry that there was not a long term sustainable plan given the overwhelming force that the Russians could apply against the Ukrainians. However, when I came into uh, government in 2017 and started to interact with all of my colleagues in the Pentagon, and you had Laura Cooper here yesterday, I realized, in fact, that there'd been an awful lot of work done on this and that there was a clear mm-hmm. and consistent plan for the sustainability long-term of uh, the Ukrainian military. So I changed my mind. Okay. And you're, you're in fact, one of the... I believe the only witness that we've spoken to that has been able to articulate the opposition um, to providing the javelins 
Uh, and as we understand it, during the Obama administration, the interagency consensus was, in fact, to provide the javelins, but, but, it, but they were not provided. Were you aware of the decision back then? I was, and I think it was very much made on a political uh, basis about concerns that this would provoke the Russians, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how this was presented. And we were very mindful of that also when there were the discussions internally about uh, the lethal defensive uh, weapons uh, inside of the administration. Mr. Holmes, you're on the ground in, in Kiev. Oh, this um, is going to be good now. The javelins have now been uh, authorized, provided. What, what's the view from the field, uh, the U.S. Embassy, uh, as to the effectiveness of the javelins? They're, in, they're an important strategic deterrent. Uh, they're not actively employed in combat operations right now, but the mere idea that were the Russians to advance substantially using certain kinds of armor, uh-huh. that the Ukrainians would have this capability, deters them from doing so. Uh, it also thereby sends a very important symbol, uh, symbolic message to the Ukrainian military that they have access to this high-end technology and that we trust them to do it. I would only add also that they, uh, they've offered to buy some using their own funds. The initial tranche was provided through a, uh, basically a program to do that, but they've now offered to spend their own money to buy more. So I think they think they're important. And Ambassador Taylor has testified, uh, uh, Mr. Kent has testified that this is, uh, in fact, the uh, consensus of, of the interagency uh, providing the javelins is is it the um, in your experience of working with Ambassador Taylor was he also very uh, very much an advocate for this yes um, come on do Mr. it Mr Holmes I want to go back to name some Americans uh, now I want to talk a little bit about Ukrainians uh, Ukrainian government officials mm-hmm. uh, are you familiar with Sergei Lashenko? Yes. Have you met with him? I have. Um, he, he was a journalist, then he was in the parliament. Is he currently in the parliament? Journalist again. Journalist again. Um, are you aware uh, that when he was in the parliament that he had provided information to a Fusion GPS operative named Nellie Orr? I'm not aware of Nellie Orr. I'm not aware of who he provided information to. I'm aware that as a journalist, he's provided information. Well, this was, he was in the parliament at the time. This is in the 2016 campaign. He provided uh, widely known as the Black Ledger. Have you ever heard of the Black Ledger? I have. And uh, the Black Ledger, is that seen as credible information? Yes. The Black Ledger is credible? Yes. Uh, Bob Mueller did not find it credible. Do you dispute what Bob Mueller's findings were? They didn't use it in the prosecution or in the report? I'm not aware that Bob Mueller did not find it credible. Uh, I think it was evidence in other criminal proceedings, and its credibility was not questioned in those proceedings, but I'm not an expert on that matter. So the motivation for Lashenko, uh, as was reported, to uh, was to go after a Trump campaign official and undermine Trump's candidacy. Are you aware of that? If you mean by the release of the Black Ledger, I think Leschenko's uh, motivation was the same motivation he's always expressed, which is to expose corruption in Ukraine. Right, but he's admitted uh, motivation was to partly at least undermine the Trump candidacy that he did not support. He has not said that to me. If, if, if he said that to you, I'll take your word for it. Um, and you're aware that the – you heard Dr. Hill's testimony, uh, but the 
Steele dossier that contained initially that initial information that was fed in the FBI, were you aware that the Democrats had paid for that information? So, sir, I never had any involvement directly. Uh, I'm not accusing of involvement. I'm just asking if you not, – not even if you knew at the time, but you now know today that the Democrats had paid – for that information. So, so I do want to be clear that all that happened before I arrived in Ukraine, so I don't have any firsthand. Not accusing any involvement of you with a still dossier. But Understood. But, but I do want to be clear about that. And then, and then in addition, I have read about those issues, but I'm not an expert on them. But you're not disputing that the, Democrat, the Democrats and the Clinton campaign were the source of funds that funded the still dossier? I wouldn't be in a position to dispute that, sir. Do you think it's appropriate for political parties to run operatives in foreign countries to dig up dirt on their opponents? No. Good. Dr. Hill, do you think it's appropriate for political parties to pay operatives to dig up dirt on their opponents? I do not. Excellent. Turn to the um, excellent, right? Because now they think they're doing um, it for Biden, but it's not about Biden. um, Very pleased. Let me fast forward here. As you know, that the financial records show that this Ukrainian natural gas company, Burisma, routed more than $3 million to the American accounts of Hunter Biden. I've heard that. Did you, were you familiar with that, Dr. Hill? Only from newspaper reports. Okay. Did you know that Burisma's American – and this is back to you, sure. Mr. Holmes. Uh, did you know that Burisma's American legal representatives met with Ukrainian officials just days after the vice president forced the firing – of the country's chief prosecutor? No. Did you know that Burisma's American lawyers tried to secure a meeting with the new state prosecutor the same day the predecessor, Victor Shokin's, Shokin's firing was announced? No. Did you know that Joe Biden called Ukrainian President Porchenko at least three times in February 2016, shortly after the president and owner of Burisma's home was raided on February 2nd by the state prosecutor's office? No. Did you know that Devin Archer and Hunter Biden reached out to the Deputy Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, shortly after the raid on Burisma? No. So, Dr. Hill, did you know about uh, – I don't want to go through and ask all those questions over I also, again. I also did not know. That's you did not know about it. I did not know. No. Okay. okay. So you obviously know that the president had concerns about Burisma had concerns about 2016 election meddling by the Ukrainians. Um, when, you were, when you were in there as, as the head of the Ukraine right. uh, uh, desk, um, did you ever raise any of these – did you ever brief the president or raise it up to Ambassador Bolton about any concerns through 2017 and 18 that – Concern 2016 election meddling or, or Burisma concerns? The whole briefing process didn't really work in the way that um, you're suggesting there. So um, if the president had asked uh, about any of this information, it would have been provided for him. Just to be very clear, Ukraine was not a top foreign policy priority in this period in the same way that many other issues that we could talk about from Syria to Turkey and others are. So there weren't that frequent briefings on Ukraine. The briefings would take place when there was a scheduled meeting uh, with um, a Ukrainian head of state. Mm -hmm. And as we know, there haven't been too many of those. So just to – but as far as you know, you did no 
no briefings, no papers, answered no questions as it relates to the 2016 election or Burisma during your time there? No, I did not know. Mr. Uh, and Dr. Hill, you told us uh, during your deposition that, indeed, uh, um, that there, there are perceived uh, conflict of interest troubles when the child of a government official is involved with, with something that that government official has an official policy role in, correct? I think any family member of any uh, member of the U.S. government, Congress, or the Senate is open to all kinds of questions about optics and uh, of perhaps undue outside influence if they take part in any kind of activity that could be misconstrued as being related to their parent or other family member's work. So as a matter of course, yes, I do think that's the case. Um, Getting back to Ambassador Sondland, you testified that um, every now and then he made a habit of of name-dropping his interactions with the president? That's correct, yes. I believe you also told us that there were instances where you would run into him on the campus and he would say, oh, I'm, I'm here to see the president or I'm, I've been in to see the president, and you had an occasion to circle back and found out that wasn't the case? That's correct. Um, and I just want to give you an opportunity. He, he testified about some sort of coffee he had with you uh, on your last day, and I, I think when the deposition transcript was released, um, your your counsel uh, indicated that that was um, completely fabricated on Ambassador Sondland's part, and I just want to give you an opportunity to, to um, address that. Yes, um, I mean, unfortunately, um, this is the federal government. We don't have coffee machines, you know, readily in our office. If you'd come to my office in that time, the best I could have offered you was a cup of water from the water fountain outside of my office. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the coffee that um, Ambassador Sunland and I shared was actually we ran into each other, or rather he found out I was going to be there and then asked me to meet him for coffee in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, in 2018 in August. So this is a full year before I left. That was a very nice coffee, so perhaps he, you know, conflated those two meetings together. Let's fast forward because it's almost done. It started with the Steele dossier that we've already established that the Democrats had paid for and had then fed into the FBI. So, at the end of the day, the Commander-in-Chief, concerned about 2016 election meddling by Ukraine, doesn't, sounds like you had just earlier testified that you weren't aware of that, but if that was the concern of the President to try to get to the bottom of it, and it's the concern of, of Ambassador Sondland, who was trying to set up meetings uh, on behalf of to make to ensure really uh, that meetings occurred and phone calls occurred to strengthen the relationship um, a little I mean I understand the people at the NSC people at the State Department had issues with that but at the end of the day isn't it the commander-in-chief that makes those decisions my point uh, Mr. Nunes is that we at the National Security Council were not told either by the president directly or through Ambassador Bolton that we were to be focused on these issues as a matter of U.S. foreign policy toward Ukraine. So when um, you're talking about um, Ukraine in 2016, I never personally heard the president uh, say anything specific about 2016 in Ukraine. I've seen him seeing plenty of things publicly, but I was not given a directive. In fact, I was given a directive on July 10th by Ambassador Bolton very clearly to stay out of domestic politics. Just for sake of the timeline, I think as of July 19th, um, they hadn't even engaged with Rudy Giuliani yet. I, I don't believe 
that happened until a little bit later. So you believe by July 19th they were already engaged in those types of activities? We had already had a discussion uh, with Kurt Volker, um, which was in the depositions of his assistant, Chris Anderson, that indicated that he had met with um, Rudy Giuliani at this point. And Ambassador Sondland made comments about meeting with Giuliani. And as we know, in the May 23rd meeting, they had been instructed to meet with Giuliani. They gave us every impression that they were meeting with Rudy Giuliani at this point. And Rudy Giuliani was also saying on the television, and indeed has said subsequently, that he was closely coordinating with the State Department. So it was my belief that they were meeting with him. Okay. Um, And there's some... I mean, there's some ambiguity in the, the direction to work with Rudy Giuliani. Ambassador Volker said the president on uh, Colonel Vindman, um, suggesting that he has a dual loyalty, that he's not really loyal to America. He's loyal. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so time is almost up. I wanted you guys to listen to it because I know a lot of people don't catch it. I know a lot of you are working and listening. But I hope that the portions that I put out there indicate the hypocrisy that is happening right now at Capitol Hill, this circus. And stay tuned for a lot of articles dropping today and tomorrow that are pretty insane. Uh, This circus just showed you that career politicians, career foreign service officers that create alliances as they stick together in a clique are very dangerous to our national security, even though they're supposed to be protecting it. On that note, God bless to everyone from all of us here at Red State. Have a fabulous evening.